about to invite everyone to find their way back to their seats, but you've done it already. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Put your hand up if you can't hear me. Well, I guess we're all good then. Um, I, I know it's not as ideal not being able to see uh, my face and that as I talk, but if you can hear me okay, then that's not a problem. Not like that, Frog. <laughs> Before we get into God's Word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you've made yourself known to us through your Word. We thank you that when Jesus came, he called around him trusted friends who, it's true, didn't always get everything right, but who had a great love for Jesus and followed him. And we thank you for your servant Peter, who followed along uh, from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, learning at the feet of the Son of God. We thank you for the, the words that he wrote down to the churches uh, in Asia so that we might be inst- well, they might be instructed by them first and that we might be instructed by them all of these years later. We thank you that as we read what Peter teaches to us, we know that it's what Jesus is teaching to us, that Peter is applying all of the things that he learned from Jesus into the life of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I didn't change the placeholder one. My mistake. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8 and through to 4 verse 6. Finally, all of you, Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter has outlined quite a lot of stuff there about what it looks like to suffer or to live your life doing good. And really in a lot of ways there's not that much in this passage that that is new. But what Peter is doing is he's building on what we've already seen back in uh, chapter 2. I told you these two verses were kind of, this this is the mission statement. And then Peter spends the next few chapters unpacking all of these things. So let's just take a look at those two verses again. Uh, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter is writing this letter uh, to a number of churches in uh, modern-day Turkey, what was called Asia Minor in those days. And the letter is written to these churches who are being persecuted, particularly, you know, not not so much thrown to the lions and, and, you know, into jail-type persecution, but the abuse that um, that we, we just read about in the bit Peter was talking about, they the people around them see that they're not joining in with all the things they used to and they're abusing them. And their, their positions, you know, in the workplace and, and things like that are being affected by false accusations and false claims about these Christians are a bunch of weirdos and guess what they get up to in the secret meetings that nobody else is invited to. And So there's lots of these, yeah, lots of these reputational damage, lots of, Uh, breakdown in relationships, lots of false accusations and problems that these churches 
are facing. And Peter writes to them in the midst of the things that they're, they're going through and he tells them and, and expounds upon these two things, abstain from sinful desires and live good lives among the pagans that, you know, they, that all the people who are accusing you will have to actually stop and go, actually as horrible as we've been to these guys, they're, they're, they're not dishing it back. They're, they're actually good people so that they might glorify God on the day that he comes. Now, it's very important that we understand that, that Peter has started his letter before this quote that we've got up there by reminding us of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that in him we have a living hope. In him we have a hope of eternal life. These things that Peter is urging them to do is not so that they will be saved. It's not, don't do any sin and be a really good witness and then Jesus might let you into heaven at the last day. It's, the order goes, because Jesus has saved you, because he loves you, because you have your living hope in him, this is how we should live in the midst of what we're going through. And I tend to emphasise that order a lot, but that's because it's really important, because of how easily we can get it into our heads that this is what we do to uh, get ourselves into heaven, to make God happy with us, uh, to make God love us. God, God already loves you, and that's why we should then go and live in a way that glorifies him. And so for this church, these churches that are going through this persecution and living in a society that's suspicious of them at best and hates them at worst, Peter tells them, abstain from sin and live good lives among the pagans. And the question that naturally most of the churches would have is, why? Why should I bother you know, being good to all of these people that are being horrible to me? Why should I you know, keep on abstaining from sin when abstaining from sin is getting, you know, getting people to pour abuse on me. Why suffer for doing good? And that's really the question that I think Peter is, is anticipating and getting at in this part of his letter. So what he's telling us to do here is not particularly new in the passage I read out before. It's, it's more of that abstaining from sin and living good lives as a witness to the society around us. But what he does throw in is a lot of reasons why to go through all that. Why should we suffer for doing good? It's a good question, isn't it? I don't like suffering and I'm pretty sure most of you don't either. None of us like being made fun of us, fun of. None of us like being abused. None of us like the suffering that comes in a broken and unfair world. So why go on with it? Why stick our hand up to say, yes, I'm going to keep following Jesus, keep turning away from sin and keep trying to set a good example in this world, even though setting that good example seems to just set people against us more and more. Well, Peter gives us three reasons. And the first that I've already given away up there is that in doing good, 
and being a good example in the world and turning from sin, we will both be a blessing to the world and we ourselves will be blessed. Peter tells them, finally, all of you. It's good to see I'm not the only one who sometimes says finally when I'm only halfway through my sermon. But um, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Don't respond to evil with evil, but repay evil with a blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. I think most of us know that's there in the Bible. And I think both of, most of us can nod our heads sagely and go, that's good advice, you know. Uh, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind, and it just leads to this escalation. So don't respond to evil with evil, but with good. But when people actually have a crack at us, it's much harder to put into practice, isn't it? It's much harder to turn the other cheek. It's much harder to show love and grace when somebody else is just throwing all of that back in our faces. Peter, following the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, calls us to non-violence, to non-retaliation, here he's spelling out what it means for Jesus to teach us to love our enemies and do good for those who persecute us. And we live in a world where we've seen the examples of the difference that it's made when people have lived this motto. We've seen the difference churches have made when they've refused to respond to evil with evil, but have responded with a blessing. And even outside of the churches, some have seen the example of Christ and we've seen the rise of, of the non-retaliation, like peaceful protest movements like uh, you know, that of Mahatma Gandhi in India. And we've seen the impact it makes when somebody refuses to respond to violence with violence. I remember uh, a long time ago now... It, uh, you might remember on the ABC there was a program called Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. And he was interviewing on that program a man who used to be a grand dragon in the Ku Klux Klan in America, uh, a white supremacist group. And he was giving his story, his testimony, uh, because it was a testimony, it was coming to faith in Jesus uh, that had brought him out of that life. But he was telling about how it all started was with an older African-American man who he was getting stuck into and who wouldn't respond to evil with evil or to insult with insult. And no amount of insults, no amount of violence would have turned this man from his course that he was on. But love for enemies, that stands out. There's not a lot of that in our world. Loving our enemies sounds beautiful when someone else has to do it. But it's not so easy when I have to do it. We all know the temptation to clap back at somebody who's had a crack at us. But when we do it, when we show love 
to those who hate us. When we respond to evil with a blessing, we show Christ's love in a powerful way. And Peter uh, reminds us we are blessed by God in turn. Repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. When we follow the example of Christ, we have the blessing of following a life that follows the example of Christ, which is a good thing in and of itself. But we also have the hope of an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away and a place where there will be no more suffering and no more persecution and barbed remarks. And so he quotes here from this Psalm 34. Whoever would love life and see good days, keep their tongues from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And again, in this psalm, David is appealing to those who are the people of God, to those who have already put their trust in him. This is not about what you do to be saved, but this is what you do to enjoy the life that we have been saved to, to enjoy the freedom to not have to respond to hatred with hatred and violence with violence. And he says, following on from that, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, he does qualify, of course, afterwards, but actually, yes, yeah, sometimes that will happen, where even when you are good, people will still persecute the church. But his, general, but, but his point still stands that it does blunt the spheres of a lot of attacks if people try to attack the church and the church is just lovely to them. It takes a lot of the fire out of the bellies of those who hate us. And it reminds us, which is a good thing to, uh, to be reminded of, because I have seen the example of some churches that have missed this point, is that we don't have to seek out persecution. We recognise the reality that persecution may happen when we're faithfully following Jesus. But we don't have to try and make it happen to us. Live good lives and then no one will be eager to harm us if we're eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing evil than for doing good. If troubles do come, don't be afraid because he'll be with us in it. The church throughout the ages has faced many outbreaks of persecution and hatred. And all throughout it have been incredible testimonies of those who may have survived or may have died in those persecutions but who knew one thing for sure, and that was the presence of God with them through it all. Peter encourages us, if the world hates us, if the world is having a crack at us, be ready 
to make a defence, uh, not, not with weapons but with words. Be ready to make a defence for the hope that we have so that our words and our life might show even our enemies the love of Christ, that they might turn and glorify God. Are we ready? Are we ready to give a reason for the hope that we have when that question comes out of the blue? Are we ready to face suffering if it should come? Again, we don't have to seek it out, but if it should come, are we ready? Can we love those who hate us? Not just laugh at us, but hate us. We may have to. And if so, it's encouraging to know that we can, in doing that, we can follow the example of Christ. We're reminded by Peter that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And in just those few words, he's making the point very clear, that wasn't fair, what happened to Jesus. He was righteous and he died for the unrighteous put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff about him going and uh, witnessing to the imprisoned spirits who were disobedient long ago. And that's a wonderful way to sidetrack a sermon and get tied down in the nitty-gritty of uh, what all that actually means. But we're not going to do that today because Peter's broad point, the point, the main point that he's making there is that Jesus doesn't call us to do anything for him that he wasn't willing to do for us. Jesus is not the backseat driver uh, who, who, who knows best and does, you know, knows all of the stuff without ever having you know, actually done things himself. Peter reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. That he came, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And, you know, there's always that part in my sermon where we, where we stop and talk about the cross, whether it's Exodus or whether it's Revelation. But that's because it's at the heart of everything that God has been doing. That the purpose of the cross was that Jesus, the Son of God, there from before the creation of the world, through whom and for whom all of us and all things were created, he came to this earth as a human, fully God, fully man. He went to the cross despite never having broken any law or, you know, of God's or of the, the, the land around him. And although he had no sin, our sins were placed on him, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. We who didn't deserve to be able to return to God. We who didn't deserve to have a hope of eternal life with him. Because we've all rejected God in our lives. All sought to usurp his place as the, uh, you know, the ruler of the world and the ruler of our lives. And although we were his enemies, 
Christ died for us. So Peter reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And there's two ways that we can respond to that. We can respond by doing good things because we feel guilty. Oh, oh I, guess, I guess if Jesus did all that stuff for me, I'd better you know, do some stuff for him so that I can sort of pay him back a little bit. Uh, maybe if I do enough good stuff, that'll pay back the way that Jesus uh, gave his life for me. Guilt and duty and obligation are not things that glorify God. When we, when we act out of those things, it, um, it tends to instill in us this idea that we can repay Jesus for what he's done. Or instead, we can respond with gratitude. Jesus died for me. I can never repay him. But I can learn from his love for me and how much he means to me and seek to be that for others. So that in doing that, that Jesus might be glorified. Knowing that we're loved by God so much that he gave his only son, it makes a difference. Knowing that you're loved always makes a difference. We, you know, how many of you have seen it? You know, there's, a, there's a handful of teachers and people in the room. How many of us have seen it in the lives of those kids who aren't really loved by mum and by dad? It makes a tremendous difference to somebody's life if they know that they're loved, doesn't it? All sorts of different behaviours come out if we know that there's somebody who is, stands with us no matter what. Knowing that your love makes it easier to make sacrifices. And Peter also reminds us of the end of the story in following Christ's example. It didn't end with Jesus on the cross, but it ends with his resurrection, by which we're saved, he reminds us. And although it does, I, I should briefly address, he talks about how the, the water that symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Uh, but he does clarify throughout that it's not the baptism itself that saves us, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God that it's by the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're saved. And that the baptism was just the church's way of showing uh, symbolically our assent to be included with Jesus in his death and resurrection in a time where the people got baptised the minute that they were saved basically so that uh, baptism comes to be synonymous with salvation but he reminds us it saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and power in submission to him Jesus' path doesn't, doesn't end in suffering and humiliation on the cross, but in glory at the Father's side. And when we follow in his footsteps, it's the same path. Some suffering now, for sure, but glory later. Now, not that we will be exalted to the extent that Jesus is exalted, 
he is the son of God who was sinless and died in our place. He is exalted to the highest place. But the Bible is clear that to those who put their trust in him, we will be given, we, we will have a share in the glory of God. So that's the second of the three reasons Peter gives us to keep going, keep pressing on, to keep doing good and avoiding sin, even in persecution, even when life is hard. One, so that we can be a blessing, so that our lives can matter and that we might be blessed by God for our faithfulness in that. Second, the example of Christ. And the third thing he tells us is that when we do this, we can be free. 4 verse 1, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. If you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry, In suffering, Peter tells us, we grow more like Jesus. We grow in Jesus we, and we die more and more to sin. Now, when it says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, I don't think that means that whoever is, you know, has been persecuted in any way following Jesus will suddenly be completely sinless and perfect. But it shows at a very deep level that our allegiance has changed, that we are no longer out for just ourselves, which is the heart of what sin is. But instead, we are living our lives to the glory of God. If we can, uh, yeah, if we can subject ourselves for his sake, even to suffering, it's clear that we have a new Lord in our lives and it's not me and myself. <clears throat> but all the same, although we don't aim for sinless perfectionism in this life, Peter tells us that we can be free from sin. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a Christian, it is no longer inevitable that you must sin. Every time that there is a temptation, there is a real chance that we can beat that temptation. The reality of our fallenness is that we are unlikely to win 100% of those battles. But we are free from sin in a way that those who have put their trust in Jesus are not. That we no longer have to sin by our very nature the question is do we feel like we're free from sin or do we sometimes feel like sin is the freedom like those out there who get to do whatever they want are the free ones do we feel like maybe we haven't had enough time living in debauchery lust drunkenness orgies carousing and detestable idolatry or, you know, 
maybe some of those, maybe all of them. It's one of the oldest lies, after all, that God is holding out on us and that freedom is found away from him rather than with him. But the picture of sin we see in the Bible is like a cancer within us. Sin is something that might start off not affecting us in any significant way. But it's there and it's growing. And as it grows, it starts to cause a lot more problems. Sin is never something that is free. There's always a cost to sin. Because God made us not to sin. God made us to live in relationship with him. That's the way that we were designed. Sin is to go against what God has called us to. And God has called us to what is good for us. So when Peter tells us that when we choose to put our trust in Jesus, when we choose to be associated with him even through suffering, we, in some incremental way, we are done with sin. We are free from sin and instead we can live for the will of God. And he also tells us that we're free from what the world thinks, from the judgment of others. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. There are some believers. The gospel preached to them. And now they're dead. We don't know whether they were believers in these churches that Peter is writing to or elsewhere. They were judged according to human standards in regard to the body. People decided that these people were guilty and deserved to die. But God decided that they deserve life and life everlasting. When we don't go along with the world, they will think less of us. When we don't go along with things that the world says is good, uh, when we don't agree that every single form of sexual expression is healthy and good, when we don't go along and say that the rights of the unborn don't matter, that they're not a human life. When we don't go along with the world, they might even abuse us and hate us. Do you care about what others think of you? I know I do. I don't think any of us has perfectly managed to, you know, completely cut off that part of ourselves that cares about what others think. But Peter reminds us again that it's what God thinks that matters in the end. 
And that's an encouragement to us and a comfort to us when others might hate us. That what he will think of us on the last day is, or what he will say is, well done, good and faithful servant. What he thinks on that last day, it matters for us and it matters for them. There's all the more reason not to worry if people hate us for following the example of Christ. But instead to love them, that they might turn and be forgiven. Are you excited about a world in which people might hate us and persecute us? Well, me either. But for the one who died for me, for the good of those around us that I love, whether hated or not, let's embrace that call that Peter has given us to live as aliens and strangers in this world, abstaining from the sin that wages war on your soul and living such good lives among the pagans that though they persecute you, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you endured for our sake. We thank you that you have given us the example to follow. And we're reminded that though there are times of suffering now, and though during those times of suffering we just want them to be over, you remind us that we have an unshakable hope of glory that comes later. We just pray that you will help us to live lives that glorify you. We pray that you will help us to practice that really hard art of loving those who don't love us, loving those who persecute us. We pray that you will help us to put to death the sinful man each and every day, the sinful heart within us, and live for your righteousness. Not so that we can be saved, but trusting that we have been saved through what Jesus has done for us, that we might live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish up our time this morning singing of what Jesus did for us.